0: Welcome to the December 4th Rethink Energy podcast with Peter White, Harry Morgan and myself, Andres Vantanar.
1: This has been going on with India forever, ever since we, we've kind of come, been covering them for the last 30 years, which is basically they try to be very protectionist. They try to be very advanced and, and up with everybody else. And they always end up stumbling and hitting their numbers four to five years Afterwards, so when, for instance, 3G was becoming available, you know, India were going to be early on 3G, and they were last. And and when 4G came along, uh, they were going to be up there with China, but they were last. You know, it, it just it's continually um, what happens in India, um, and I don't really understand the culture. I mean, I do understand this conflict between central and district and, and state uh, or regional government quite clearly. What well, that's what gets in its way. And and so its plans
0: have to be always taken, not just with a pinch of salt, but with a four to five year delay. Yeah, that's the impression I got. And I just sort of found it a bit hard to almost to believe that they would just say these things. And oh, but it's actually five years later. I guess that makes sense. And people like Narendra Modi himself, who has been pushing solar, I mean, you wouldn't imagine that he necessarily cares that much about all the technical details. No, he, but he wants to say to the um, states, mm. okay, you 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 are
1: resisting me over the 175 gigawatt target. Well, I'm upping it to 220. Now do as you're told. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and maybe maybe he's thinking maybe they'll hit the 175 if I do that. It it, it doesn't seem likely. Uh, and the verdict
0: hasn't changed on the the ability to build their own manufacturing industry. I think they'll they will do it, but it just won't be that good. The thing and is about about manufacturing
1: keep... industries in places like so Brazil and India are the two that stand out as you, you always had to be 100% owned in those countries. And then later and in China you had to be 51% owned by Chinese interests and and later it was 51% owned. So that the Indian people, Indian companies had to have Absolute control and it stops people from investing. It's not it's not a pro investment uh, thing. It stops people from investing. They all want to get involved. I mean, like Vodafone is in India and has been for a long time. But Vodafone had to buy into India late in the day because it because it didn't like what it saw before then. And it was the same with satellite TV. You know, the first satellite TV company did incredibly well but still wasn't allowed to be owned by anybody who wasn't from India it's it's all these restrictions which prevent these things from happening they are as you pointed out in this article contradictory you know if you've got to install a record number
0: of solar panels they've all got to be Indian you can't have both well, actually, that, that's another thing I thought that I mentioned in this article is they keep on talking about how they're going to raise the tariff on Chinese imports, but they're not actually <laughs> doing it. Is that another case where they'll get around to it eventually? No. Well, yeah, because someone is sitting there saying, yeah, and
1: we'll raise it when we've made this many. When we've got this many coming up mm. off per week. And how many have we got coming off per week? Uh, none. So, OK, well, then, you yeah, know, we can't just stop the solar industry and we'll raise it when we're ready. And you won't be ready for three, for three to four more years. And they won't be ready then, because it would have moved on. I mean, look at the way we're looking at our estimates for wind and solar. You know, we, we're almost cursing ourselves for, for um, uh, having the coronavirus epidemic get in the way of our forecasts and, and alter them slightly, and, and having to reiterate or restate them. But the, the thing is, there are, these markets are just constantly accelerating. And if, you're always going to underestimate them somewhat. But if you try to play catch up with them economically and you underestimate them, you're in trouble. There is an interesting idea that somewhere between now and 2050, each of the countries that we, we do these forecasts on are going to have to say, OK, we've got enough renewables now. Let's stop building them and there will there will be obviously some overbuild they'll they'll want 10 or 20 percent spare capacity Uh, and obviously we've got to grow in the capacity for all the industrial processes to be electrified and for home heat and cars to be electrified but even after that if we hit hit all that by 2050 at some point we're going to have to have this stagnant flat time when people say we now go into replacement mode. We've done the renewables industry. And it's interesting, as I was doing that uh, look back at anger forecast, uh, I'm going, well, I've got too much electricity here, you know, because I've just carried on growing renewables. Oh, they must flatten. When, when must they flatten? For most advanced countries, they must flatten in 2040 or so, begin to flatten the curve, and only produce the same amount as, as last year. So there is time you can grow your your renewables capacity in the
2: country and still and have a few years of failure and still catch up i think yeah it's interesting to think about india because at some point they will be one of these markets that just suddenly takes off whether that's with their own production capacity or using imports from china but it's interesting because obviously they're continuously underperforming now but i'd imagine at some point in the 2030s they'll really start to exceed people's targets i know for for offshore wind what we looked at in our upcoming forecast is that they're going to fall i think it's something like 25 gigawatts short of their target for 2030 if you then think if we extrapolate that out to 2040 will they still be missing targets by then i probably don't i don't think they will be but yeah it's depends how strict they are on these local content requirements
1: i mean it's a society in change one of the things that made the coronavirus so damaging to india was the fact that people don't work they go and look for work in other parts of india and if you suddenly stop paying them they've got no support infrastructure they've got no family they've got no permanent home and they all end up having to go back one or two thousand miles to where they came from this lack of mobility long term to, to actually grow the workforce where you want it and, and house it properly and pay, pay for it properly is always just slowing it down. And it's a com- country that's gonna get over that in the next 10 to 15 years and start to change dramatically. And politicians like Modi want to be instrumental in that. They don't want the climate change problem. They want to deal with the economic problems of their own country first and foremost. But they, they, they kind of have to try and deal with both at the same time. But somewhere in the next 10 or 15 years, India is going to start to become an economic powerhouse.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, we will have the world's largest population at some point over the next sort of five years. So, yeah, I mean, it, you'd expect it to sort of start to take off in the same way that China did maybe 15 years ago.
1: I mean, we've got this letter this week that went to The Observer from uh, Dan Bruett, the uh, Secretary of Energy, for another month in the States, uh, uh, telling them, you know, you should be buying American LNG because it's healthier than Russian LNG, bemoaning the fact that Russia can have a pipeline, whereas he's got to deliver it on ships and, and, and saying it's cleaner than anyone else. And America's got the cleanest record for climate change, all of which is nonsense. It's very Trumpian. But... When you look at uh, Russia is, is, is uh, pipelining uh, gas, natural gas, into Europe and into China. Um, what, what that appears to Americans who can only see the old 60s Cold War is that Russia is taking control of having political influence in those areas. And it's not that way around. China is buying gas from Russia, which is giving China political influence over Russia. Because if we don't like you, we'll stop buying from you. China is looking to build an Asiatic grid, which will take in India. While Russia may sell gas for a few years, uh, China will certainly sell Russia, but India especially, spare electricity. And with that comes massive political influence, because if you add those countries together and you throw in a, a few surrounding countries and you give China political influence over all of it, he's got a, a global trading block that's unassailable and that's that's America's worst nightmare
2: Yeah, I think when you're in a situation of oversupply like we are with oil at the moment, and and inevitably will be for natural gas in the future, the power you have as a a seller of of those commodities actually starts to become a bit of a hindrance. I think um, it becomes much more a strong geopolitical position to actually be buying the product if you've got a number of countries trying to sell it to you for the cheapest price. Uh, I mean, we're seeing that at the moment with the US and how their companies are really struggling with selling oil and making profit out of uh, shale oil.
1: I, I, I after I wrote the production gap piece for the IPCC
2: I kind of started
1: to feel that there, there's a process of crying warfare when the IPCC or rather when the UN environment program draws a graph about oh we've got to lose six percent of emissions per annum for the next 10 years it's a straight line. And I think, well, it's never going to be a straight line because it's going to be an accelerating curve. And the the fact that they this week have come up with another version of the production gap saying, look, you've used all your coronavirus recovery money and you've spent it on fossil fuels. But they produce a graph with it that shows that almost nobody has spent it all on fossil fuels. The United States has spent the most. But places like Germany, the UK, France, China have all spent, and India, even in Canada, all spent sensible amounts, shoring up their fossil fuel producing industries, oil and coal and gas, because it, for them to go bankrupt overnight would create such a recession and such disruption. You can understand what, why they, they've spent more money on fossil fuels, and you can see why the UN would be upset about that. But it seems to make sense that the first thing you do is not go bust, and then you invest what you've got left. By the end of it,
2: I was thinking, no, this isn't a problem. Something that I mean, it was inevitable, I guess, this week was that ExxonMobil was going to announce some sort of write-downs. I mean, they've been ho- holding off doing it for so long. I think we've seen literally every other oil major do it over the past year, so... It was just a matter of time before Mobile had to announce some difference to their books. Otherwise, they'd be seeing investors jump out even more than they already are. But funnily enough, in, the, in this write down, they didn't mention uh, the energy transition. They purely sort of focused on um, assets they'd acquired back in 2010. They were overpriced back then, but it's not why the company is in sort of a terminal decline now. So, yeah, as part of this plan, it was very characteristic. It was very much uh, we're going to cut spending. We're going to um, reduce our workforce, but we're going to keep pumping out oil. Um,
1: I'm, I'm always shocked at the, the way uh, shareholders don't revolt and just say, "No, you've had your chance. You're all fired. Let's put in put in a new CEO and a new management team." And that hasn't happened once in any of the oil companies. And if you think that you were holding that stock for 10 years and you looked at what had just happened to that that stock, you'd be pretty inclined to throw out the um, the management.
2: Yeah, I think the only reason they're really surviving is the investor mentality that giant companies, I mean, ExxonMobil was the largest company in the US, um, I think, around sort of, 20 years ago. So this view that the giants can't suddenly disappear into absolutely nothing. I think when when you've got the companies paying these dividends to to keep you on board, it's like, oh, they must bounce back at some point. If they need to transition, they'll get support from the government to transition. But it just won't be the case. Bear in mind, in the US as well, there's a lot of people who really are still sort of on the fence with climate change, aren't convinced that it's going to happen and think that, maybe the European oil companies are being overly cautious I guess with climate change and the fact that they're reducing their investment in oil and gas means that there is an opportunity for companies like ExxonMobil to sort of go in as oil prices increase. O- oil prices will increase briefly due to the European investment sort of bailout I guess but um, in the long run it's definitely not sustainable thinking that we'll be using oil or gas uh, in sort 20-30 of years time which is the result of the decisions being made today.
1: I was um, really impressed with this Scottish startup. I couldn't believe the way they'd um, effectively taken an environmental consultancy and come up with uh, a series of renewable technologies, most of which do not have chimneys. Uh, There is no stack, so there can't be any gases released because they're all self-consistent, self-contained technologies and connected them all together to create a 200 megawatt power plant, which is completely without carbon, virtually Uh, completely without carbon in fact arguably they'd say it's carbon negative because it it uses some carbon and some of the carbon is then sold as building materials this is the company is called uh, holistic energy and they said this is the first holistic low carbon energy facility i'd be really fascinated to see if it gets built i spoke to his name's general cannibal you'd think that, that you change the C to an H and you think he conquer the world or become Hannibal Lecter. His name, he doesn't go by the name of general. He's, Dr. Jen Cannibal he, I had to check that he was real before I spoke to him but uh, it wasn't April the 1st so uh, it, it, the press release was, was real and he was a really fascinating character and he's, he's done a lot of the permitting work for wind farms all over, onshore farms all over Scotland He's, you know, he's been involved in the business for about 35 years in renewable energy and he just came up with this plan and, you know, and got rights to um, lease some land right next to the Peterhead gas plant which is already uneconomic, and already laying off people, just started hawking it around. And he hawked it around to um, a Chinese company, China Power Engineering. They've offered him £800 million. And he's not even said yes. He signed a a non-binding letter of intent, gone to see what other investors have got to say. It'd be very interesting to see um, how, I want to talk to him more and and understand in detail, you know, how the anaerobic digestion unit uh, what the output from that is, where they get the power from to uh, hydrolysize the hydrogen, and what the hydrogen does in the meantime. And you know, the only output that's got carbon in it is when they burn syngas. The weirdest thing for me was the Vortex bladeless wind turbines. I'd never seen anything like them. They are just sticks which stick in the ground. And as the wind blows them, it starts to move them they're kind of almost like they have a central spring up the middle and, and then then it springs back and it starts going around in a circle and it just stays for hours just barely moving just the top of it just spinning in about uh, a couple of feet movement in the circle they harness this and, and when i looked into that it's been around for, uh, for five years and no one has installed any of them so he's going to put 30 of those in this um, park and has got the rights to um, uh, to that kind of wind turbine, It's not, which is not a turbine, you know, wind energy, for, for the UK exclusively. So that uh, if it does work, he can uh, make more money out of that than he probably does out of this installation.
2: Finally, Doosan. I suppose Doosan goes back to um, to talking about what we were talking about with the Scottish turbines. Um but only in the sense that they've they've released a new one. Um, So essentially they've released this eight, well, they've announced they're working on an eight megawatt offshore wind turbine um, that they're going to release in their domestic market uh, of South Korea. And to be fair, it has had some, some success in offshore wind in the past. It's done three offshore wind projects in South Korea. But the truth is, it's done none outside of South Korea. And I think that's the point we really highlighted in the article, is that it's unlikely that Doosan will really be able to enter the, the turbine manufacturer race we're seeing between the majors in the West, so Siemens, Gamesa, Vestas and General Electric, and those in China. The Chinese developers are currently occupy around 39% of the market, which is so Shanghai Electric, Envision, uh, Goldwind and probably Mingyang over the next few years. But when you say 39%, that really just means it's they're just servicing the Chinese market. Obviously, they'll be looking to p- look beyond this, and we're better than places like South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, which is, will be sort of the big emerging markets for offshore wind. And that's essentially the crux of the article. We're going to see this area of Asia becoming the real battleground for turbine makers. I mean, Siemens Gamesa investors have already set up shop over there, but they will be worried. Off the back of what happened in the solar sector where prices fell much more quickly out of Chinese manufacturers due to their supply chain. For people at Siemens to invest Investas, while they have got a an unassailable lead at the moment with the fact that they've got these 15 megawatt turbines coming out, yeah they will be nervous that people will be happier to go for maybe a large number of 10 megawatt turbines if they can be that much cheaper.
1: And another thing is if they can be paid for by the Chinese Uh, the large Chinese banks. So you come back to the Belt and Road Road Initiative, and I imagine you'll see Chinese wind farms all over Africa when they realise that they should not be installing coal plants uh, and, and get away from fossil fuels. The Belt and Road Initiative will just switch from supporting the export of coal technology to the export of Chinese wind technology. And if it's paid for, by a loan, which you can pay back out of the proceeds of the electricity, it's not a problem. And and those large Chinese banks can fund a lot more than the World Bank can, which is where a lot of uh, African uh, renewable energy uh, is funded from.